This morning, uh, for Advent time, we're going to be walking through the five senses of Christmas and um, our five visceral senses that we have as human beings. This morning, we're going to start with the sense of taste. And in order to spend some time thinking about that, we're going to um, dive into Matthew 26, 1 through 30, which as soon as you turn to it, you're going to realize that this is not a traditional Christmas text. But as we tell the Christmas story as a community, we are always very mindful that the Christmas story is in light of the much bigger story of Christ's atonement and redemption and the work that he did here on earth and the coming in Bethlehem as a baby in a manger from Mary and Joseph uh, and, and from the Holy Spirit, um, that, that that's the beginning of the story, but the whole story is the whole story. And so this morning, as we think about taste, we want to dive into that part of the story where Christ redeemed um, this sense of taste with something that is very visceral, And it's very important to us as a community. It's a great reminder to us. In fact, we call it that. It's a a reminder, a sign, a symbol of God's redemption of us through Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to dive into today. As we do that through God's word, let's pray together. Father, we ask that you come and meet us. We ask that you are present here and that in your presence, Lord, we can experience those things, not because of our own experience and our own thoughts and our own feelings, but because of the power of your word, we can experience transformation. We can experience movement in our hearts and our minds, a deeper understanding, a deeper love for you, and out of that, a deeper love for others. I pray for those folks who are here today, Father, who are questioning, wondering, Perhaps they're questioning from a place where they don't have faith in Christ, where they don't know what it is to believe. Father, we ask that you come, that you quicken hearts, move minds, touch emotions in such a way that perhaps that story can change today. And Lord, for those who are simply here, complacent, just trying to get through life, we ask that you, again, quicken our hearts and move us in such a way that we can be um, not just going through this, this season and this life, putting one foot in front of the other. Instead, Lord, that you move us to purpose, purpose to glorify you and to show you to the world around us, to put you on display in such a way that others might see who you are to us. And those who live in joy, Father, who come with great excitement to worship today because they long for more of you, we ask that you meet them as well, touch their hearts and equip them even more to service and to love to see the kingdom grow around them. Father, this is all work that you and you alone can do through the power of your word and the presence of the Holy Spirit because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We ask that you do that work today. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So we saw all of our kids up here, and our kids actually just went through a holiday, we all did, where taste is a pretty important thing, right? I mean, we just went through on Thursday, and I know some of you had had gatherings on Thursday. Some of you had gatherings at other times. Uh, maybe you're still anticipating. Maybe even this afternoon you're gathering with the family for Thanksgiving time. Taste is a big part of Thanksgiving, right? I mean, when you sit down for a meal, you're looking, you're looking for something good, right? And your kids are too. And your kids will let you know what it is that they don't want. How many of you had Brussels sprouts at Thanksgiving? How many of your kids ate their Brussels sprouts? 
I'm impressed. That's good. That's awesome. I'm really glad that there is a family with kids who like Brussels sprouts. Because as a kid, I hated Brussels sprouts. It was right in there with zucchini. And those of you who know me know zucchini is like a work of the devil. But Brussels sprouts were close. They've gotten better now, but that's because I make them with bacon fat. And that makes everything better. But when you're a kid, you grab onto those sorts of tastes. When I was a kid, there were a couple different things that um, became uh, uh, sort of reminders, little important things that if they weren't a part of this, let's say this Christmas time of year, then, then I wasn't really, you know, hitting all my marks. It wasn't really Christmas. Ole Ballen was one of those. Ole Ballen is a Dutch donut, deep fried in fat because that's how you do things. And you, you make it with powdered sugar. It has fruit inside of it. It's a doughy mess, but it tastes so, so good. Those of you who've gone to the Holland Festival at RCS know what I'm talking about. But there was also a couple things that my mom would make every year. She made what is called Nanaimo bars. Anyone know what Nanaimo bars are? So imagine like you got a chocolate cookie crust on the bottom, and then you had like this mint stuff in the middle, with dark chocolate on the top. And as a kid, I can remember my mom would freeze them. And it was sort of a bummer because we as kids would sneak them and frozen ones were harder to eat fast, which was sort of a bummer because you want to shovel those things in as fast as you possibly could. So Nanaimo bars was a a part of the, the year and that memory remains with me. In fact, somebody gave me some Nanaimo bars a couple of years ago and it was like all of a sudden I was like eight again. She also made this pink marshmallow fluff thing that, that to this day I've never found it again. But it just sticks with me that that's part of Christmas. And, and, and it's funny because beyond the sense of smell, and science has proven this, beyond the sense of smell, the sense of taste is the sense that triggers memory the most. A sense of smell is number one. If you smell something, you can be taken back to a memory. Sense of taste is the second. And the sense of taste has that power to bring us into space and memory and moment. It has power to to sort of remind us of stuff. Well, when we think about Christmas and we think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we understand that Christ came to redeem all things. And this morning we want to explore a text where we understand how Christ redeemed the sense of taste. And he did it through this, something we're going to be talking about as we move through the passage. If you would turn with me to Matthew 26, beginning at verse 1, we're going to be reading quite a bit of text this morning, so I'm going to try to move through it fairly quickly. Beginning at verse 1, it says this, when Jesus, and this is right during the time of uh, the, the end of the Passion Week, this is right near the end when some things are being put in place for the crucifixion story to come together. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now as we read this text, thank you, thank you folks. Um, As we read this text, and we know it's not a Christmas text, but it's striking that in this text, powers are arrayed 
against Jesus in almost a mirror-like fashion as they were in Bethlehem. If you remember the story of the birth of Christ, you remember that Jesus had an enemy that day too. What was the name of his enemy? It was Herod, the king of the Jews. And Herod, as his enemy, had a plot that he was going to try to fulfill in order to stop the work of Jesus. And his plot was to be, through the wise man, he knew where Jesus was supposedly to be born. So he sent his soldiers to kill all the babies in the Bethlehem area. And Jesus, of course, escaped. But it, the plot of evil to stop the work of Jesus is a, a recurring theme in Christ's life. And here in this passage, in Matthew 26, we see it again. Except this time, instead of the, the, the ruler, the political ruler, it's the religious rulers. And the religious rulers are trying to array their power to stop Christ's power from being fulfilled. It's that recurring theme in Christ's life that someone had a taste for his blood. They wanted him. They wanted his death. And of course, we know the story enough to know that he delivered. He gave them exactly what they wanted. Ultimately, Christ's death was one of those moments when you can almost, almost imagine Caiaphas and the other religious rulers in their home or in the, the, wherever it is that they were gathered, almost having a dance of joy like we did it. We did what needed to be done, similar to Herod even at the death of the baby children. But Christ came to redeem that taste for blood. He came to change it came to restore it. Second part of the passage, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, and the money given to the poor... Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, we think about this story, and of course, Christ's prophecy in the text is come to fulfillment, right? The Christ's prophecy was simply that this woman would be spoken of in, in, the, in the community of faith for ages to come, and we're talking about her today. Uh, but there's a reason why she did what she did. There's a reason why she came with this alabaster jar of, of perfume. And if you don't know anything about that perfume, that perfume was of significant cost. In fact, the reality of it probably is, is this was a family legacy sort of perfume. Does anybody have that? Does anybody have like grandma's perfume, jar of perfume that she had? Does anyone have that? There, I know, I've, I've seen that before, that, that that would be moved one generation to the next. And every once in a while, you'll spray a little bit to remind yourself of a, a person who is, is, is now with Jesus. Or, um, but, but this woman carried that legacy. 
Because you didn't just all of a sudden end up with a jar of aloe, you didn't, a jar of perfume. Perfume was expensive. We're not talking about like a day's wages or a month's wages. We're talking about years worth of wages. In fact, the perfume, when you talk about frankincense and myrrh, which are perfumes, those sorts of things were literally in the like, um, you know, like millions of dollars sort of level that we think of today. It was that expensive. So this woman probably had this as a legacy. Maybe a rich relative in the past had moved it through generation. And for her to pour it out onto, onto Jesus' body, why would she do that? What would be the purpose? And certainly, if we look at the story and we know who she is, she's pouring it out out of gratitude, right? Thanksgiving, that Christ had come into her life somehow. Maybe she was one of the, the women who, or, or one of the folks who was on the hill when Jesus was teaching just outside of Capernaum. Maybe she was one of the people who received from the disciples part of the loaves and fishes during the great feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Maybe she was a woman who had been a part of some of his healings. We don't know very much about her because in this story she's not named and we don't know exactly what's going on here, but we do know that for her to do such a thing is, comes out of gratitude. But it comes out of gratitude because she had tasted brokenness. She had tasted a life that was without meaning. Maybe she was lost. You know, some of the women around Jesus were prostitutes. Some of them were certain, certainly forgotten by society. In the culture of Jesus' day, a woman was certainly a second-class citizen, and we don't know that she had a husband. If she was a single woman, then she was not just a second-class, but a third-class citizen. She was rejected by the world around her. So for her to come and pour this onto the body of Jesus was gratitude, but it comes, that gratitude comes from her brokenness, being redeemed. She had that taste of brokenness and what it meant to be freed from that. So she poured it out. It was like a thank you that I don't have to taste that anymore. Then we get another taste and it's the taste of Judas. Verse 14. And one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Again, we, we know how this story goes, but I, I wonder, how did we get here? What did Jesus do to Judas? What, what did he do? I mean, where in the story do we know it? We know that Judas was a thief, right? He took money from the disciples' treasury. He was the keeper of, of the money. And so maybe Jesus called him out a time or two on that. Maybe, maybe he just wasn't seeing what he wanted to see in, in Jesus' ministry. He had bought into this idea that Jesus was going to be a political Messiah and not a spiritual Messiah as Jesus was. He was going to take Israel and make it a great nation again, like in the time of David and Solomon. Maybe he just decided one day that Jesus had looked at him funny. We can't really tell, but we do know that in order to sell Jesus to the priests, Judas' lips dripped of the taste of bitterness. 
He tasted bitterness so much that it drove him to do this thing of the betrayal of the Son of God and live forever. Unfortunately, the reality of it is it's the same story is true for him as it is for the woman. We still talk about him to this day, except nobody names their kid Judas, do they? We don't like that part of the story. We don't like his part in it. Because bitterness, especially in how it manifested itself in his life, is one of those things, as we look at it, we want nothing to do with. But the problem is, is that tastes can drive us. Tastes can control us. Tastes of bitterness, tastes of brokenness, tastes for blood or revenge. It's interesting because if you, if you look at movies of the day, uh, we, we, we can see movies where you have a person bent on revenge or a person who out of their bitterness does great evil to another, right? And, and we, we, we watch those movies and we see how that can drive somebody so much to the point of doing crazy and foolish things. But the reality of it is it's not just in movies, it's in us. I guarantee you that there are people sitting here listening to my voice who are driven by bitterness. And they have the taste of it on their mouth every morning. All they have to do is wake up and they see that face. Face who wounded. Face who hurt. Face who caused pain. Maybe it's the ex. Maybe it's mom or dad. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe there's, there's something in you that taste for, I don't know, taste longing for something that drives you and moves you and consumes you. And I know for me that, that there are certain things that when I get a taste for them, my, my wife will tell me I just get so over-focused that it's like nothing else matters. And we have that in our own lives and we get that taste for something. And it can be a taste for an addiction, a taste for a passion, a taste for something that drives and moves us and controls us beyond the work of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God in our lives. Controls us. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I know for me, one of the things that I've had to Ask God to redeem me from. There's a taste of anger from my parents. My parents hurt my family when they divorced. And even now, going to see family in Michigan, that still, that taste, it doesn't take much. It takes a moment. Sitting there with my brother and his family and my family in my mom's home and we're sitting and we're talking about stuff and all of a sudden memories are triggered and the bitterness comes and I can find my heart quicken and some of that blood pressure rise and the anger come. And all of a sudden I'm different in the conversation because of that anger, because of that longing for something to be different than it was. Those tastes can control us in a moment. But Christ came to redeem our tastes and give us a taste and a longing for something so much more. And here it is. The first day of the festival and of unleavened bread, verse 17, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? 
He replied, go into the city to a certain man, tell him, teacher says, my appointed time is near, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me out of your taste for bitterness. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You've said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit or... Of the, or this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In one meal, Jesus redeems the sense of taste. And I want you to notice something incredibly important. Judas was still in the room when they ate. Did you notice that? Jesus could have served the meal after Jesus left, or Judas left because it wasn't long. He could have asked Judas to leave. He could have said to him what he says later, go and do what it is that you will do. Go, betray me. Go, give me up for dead. Go, live into that taste of bitterness that consumes you so much that you will sell the Son of God for 50 bucks. Go and do it. But he doesn't. He takes bread and pours juice or wine and he hands it to the one who causes or at least moves towards his death. He is offering to one in their bitterness redemption, hope, and life. And I don't know how to sort of work that out. Is, is Where does Judas stand within the grace of God? Is this grace offered in Christ? Is is this enough for him to be a part of the family? We do know what he says. He says, it would be better for you, Judas, if you would not have been born. I don't know what that means fully and completely. But what I do know is that Jesus is offering and willing to offer to the worst of the worst around him, one who will cause his death. He is willing to offer redemption and life and forgiveness, and hope. And for us to hear that, for you to hear that, 
Even if you are sitting here in your bitterness, even if you want to walk out because Pastor Scott's talking about living or walking with Jesus again. He wants me to buy in and I don't want to buy in. Even if you're in that place, Christ is still saying to you and I, no matter where we are, here's my body and here's my blood. And what does he say? He says, it is for you. That's the power of this memory, this taste that is connected to that memory. When you take bread and when you take that juice, I hope that it triggers in your mind not only memories of communion's past, not only memories of of being in church as a young child or, or as an older person or wherever it is that you've had meaningful communion experiences. I hope it also triggers you to be moved to remember that Christ redeemed it all for you. That although this is not physical body and blood, it is certainly spiritual. And in that sustenance that you have in that small little square of bread and that little drink of juice, he's moving you and I through our taste to remember how much he loves us. He loves us. Now, we have this celebration here. Um, once a month we host communion and I'm certainly glad that we do. It's one of my favorite parts of being a pastor here at the river is that I get to participate in this sacrament. We call this a sacrament, one of the holy acts of God that Jesus called us to remember and participate in. That's what we call a sacrament. We have two of them. One is communion, one is baptism. One of the great pleasures of this is offering this to our community once a month. Today we're going to do it a little bit differently. Usually we do it on the first Sunday of the month, but today we're doing it. Um, we're doing it today because it really fits with what we're talking about in God's Word. But, but the question that I have for some of you is: How often are you willing to eat of the bread and drink of the cup? Now, I'm not saying that you go home and you get some silver, uh, silver trays and a silver cup and set up a communion service in your home every single day. I, and I'm not even saying that, that that is always appropriate. But what I am saying is that every time you eat a piece of bread, and how many of us eat bread every day? How many of us drink juice or some sort of beverage every day? I know some of you probably we could talk about wine, but maybe we won't talk about that. But when you do that, are you willing to remember? Are you willing to volitionally, in your brain, in your heart, in your mind, say, oh yeah, Christ redeemed my taste. And even here in this moment of having a, and I hate to say it, a Big Mac with some bread from McDonald's, being reminded, Christ redeemed me. Christ gave me life. Picking up a Snapple from the 7-Eleven, taking your first drink and being reminded, Christ shed blood for me. 
Because when we think about the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, it means all of our moments, all of our days, all of our activity. So even a visit to McDonald's or the 7-Eleven can become a holy moment of being reminded that the manger in Bethlehem leads to the upper room outside of Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross which is empty and the tomb which is empty for you and I to know the love of God. When we taste those things, to remember and be thankful because without these things, without these reminders, without what it is that these symbolize, you and I have nothing but with it we have everything i've read the story you know how jesus did it now we're going to remember and i'm going to ask the elders forward in a moment they're going to situ- situate themselves two here two there two over there if you would come forward when they're available or just get into the line take the bread take the juice you can take the elements while you're sitting up here. You can eat, or while you're standing up here, you can eat and you can drink. Take your cup back then to your, uh, to your pew and you can put it in the little hole in the pew. If your children are here and they are baptized and a part of the covenant community, then they are certainly welcome to partake. And we would love to bless your family that day. But as you come forward, first of all, for yourself, Remember as you taste, when the bread hits your tongue and when you get that taste of of wheat and yeast and all that stuff, remember that Christ came to redeem you. That taste of bitterness can be gone. The taste of brokenness can be gone. The taste of hopelessness can be gone and replaced instead, instead with life. And as you take that juice for the first time and it hits the back of your throat, be reminded that out of love for you, Christ was willing to do this, enough to death, so that you might have hope and life and a future for all eternity. Let the musicians get into their place and the elders to come forward after everyone is situated if you would be uh, willing to come and receive the memory of God's love for you.